you're listening to Achievements and Strategies. I'm Brian Franklin. My guest today, Tim Quirk of Too Much Joy, Wonderlick, Sedge. We got all types of stuff to talk about today. Um, uh, Tim, I met you uh, 20 years ago, and actually, believe me, before before I even get to that, uh, this episode is sponsored by Amazeco, which uh, uh, has home office supplies for kids and adults. Um, Tim, as you can see, this is one of their products. It's a it's a tape dispenser uh, with like shaped like a banana with a monkey that, as you as you pull the the tape, it claps its cymbals, and it's really quite. Quite fun. Go to Amazeco on Amazon. That's A-M-A-Z-E-K-O and find all types of stuff there for your kids and for you. It's all fun. Okay. Tim, we met 20 years ago at the Future of Music uh, conference. Um, and uh, as is characteristic, uh, you know, there's there's things I don't remember about that conference. But um, but I, I remember sitting in a hotel room with you and I think Whitney uh, Broussard and and some and and met some others and uh, and you and I first started talking about Springsteen, which we, which we'll get to in a bit. But um, you know I was uh, I I think I was aware of too much joy. Um, I, I remembered seeing the uh, stories of the episode in Broward, which we'll, which we'll touch on. I know it's, you know, it's, it's a small part of your larger story, but, um, but uh, I wasn't really familiar with your music until I met you and then, and then got into serial killers and whatnot. Um, but ironically, I think this was t- the year 2000. And um, my, what I didn't know was that two, there, there was a band in Miami called, I don't know. Uh, that t- was composed uh, in part, at least, with uh, with some super fans of of, of TMJ, and um, and I believe you've met my friend Tony Landa a couple times at the and Fernie Copal uh, Copal um, at uh, at different occasions, but and, and I think they were supposed to like open for you in Mexico or something at at, at some point. There was some story there, um, but uh, but in the meantime, they had been playing. Um, uh, King of Beers, and uh, and uh, and take a lot of drugs, uh, in their shows as regular staples of their shows for so long, uh, at this point that I I actually thought they were their songs, um, and so I, and they were two of my favorite songs, so I accidentally became a a fan of yours, uh, not 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 knowing I'll I'll, I'll give you just a a, a touch of. Of uh, of this, just so you can hear, um, they they broke this out into three part harmonies. But uh, hold hold on one second here. See if you. Um. Good stuff, but I, 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 I would, I would hear the song and we'd sing along with this stuff, and I had no, I honestly, just dumbly didn't know that it was, because this song was on a live album, right? That came out later on. It, I mean, eventually, it's, it began life as a B-side. Oh, sorry. Let me let me let me cancel this. Oh, there you go. Sorry. Go ahead. 
It began life as a B-side. We recorded it as part of the serial killer sessions uh -huh. on a lark or as a lark. Um, so it was never really a contender for the album. Yeah. But there was a 12 inch single uh, of one of the tracks on the album called Nothing on My Mind. And the label asked us for a couple of outtakes and acoustic performances for the B-side and Take yeah. a Lot of Drugs was one of them. The song, uh, what not a lot of people know about that song, it was it was actually a protest song. It was written, uh, it began life as an effort, you know, way back in the late 80s, early 90s, uh, when the Parents Music Resource Center uh, was mm -hmm. you know, trying to censor music and uh, label it. Uh, there were a lot of weird different initiatives in different states and Pennsylvania had this crazy record labeling law where they uh, had this sticker that was supposed to go on any record with explicit content that right. said warning this album may contain you know may contain lyrics about one or more of the following and there was this Tipper Gore right? yep. yeah it was, I mean but this was going even beyond what Tipper Gore wanted this mm -hmm. was just like the crazy conservatives in Pennsylvania coming up with a checklist of everything you know morally wrong that a song might do um, and it was a weird list there was like Satanism was in there and drug use and, and alcohol abuse and I think you know premarital sex might have been on there homosexuality was on there so Take a Lot of Drugs was an effort to write a song that would check every single box uh, on that Pennsylvania and, label. And this this was pre, this was in the 80s, right? The late late 80s or? or... It, the, the, I think the Pennsylvania law happened in the 80s. We didn't okay. get around to writing or recording the song until 1990. Uh -huh. your, uh, your musical career, at the least, is peppered with um, anti-censorship censorship. Uh, aspects i guess you know you it, it seems to be you know i i knew and we'll, we'll talk a little bit about the the browern incident but i which i knew about but as i as i did some research um it wasn't it was by far not the only incident or the only issue related to censorship that you were involved in um where did the uh resistance to this stuff come from was this a something that you grew up with which was you know, kind of an anti-censorship piece where your parents uh outspoken people uh, in that regard i mean at the risk of sounding like some crazy you know conservative texan or something i'd just say it comes from being an american and taking the first amendment seriously uh it, it but that's not a value that, that you grew up with that's a val i mean sorry it's not a value that is is kind of nascent in all Americans. Obviously, people are actively trying to trying to uh, oppose it. But but you you know when did you let me, let me rephrase it? When did you realize that this was an important aspect of Amer of being an American? I I mean I it's hard for me to answer that because I can't think of a time that I didn't feel that way. I'm I'm sure when I was like you know five or six or seven maybe I didn't think about it, but it just feels like a value that was inculcated in us and yeah. you know, that we all grew up with. And, and and as I got older and older, I got more and more depressed by how frequently what I considered my compatriots were willing to let it go. Mm -hmm. um, you know, and I, you know, and even just going back to like, you know, junior high school or high school, uh, I, I remember writing for the school newspaper and the the faculty advisor to the paper, you know, he was one of those hipster liberal professor, like youngish liberal guys 
um, who'd be, you know, the cool teacher in an after-school special. Mm. And he assigned me to write a story on a program that he was tangentially involved in. Um, it was some like new experimental social studies program where they were basically you, you learned about the, as you were learning about the industrial revolution in social studies class, you would be reading Charles Dickens novels in, in, in English class or yeah. something like that. It was, it was, it was sort of vague and not really well defined. And so I interviewed a bunch of the students in the class and asked them what they thought of it. And the feedback was pretty meh. Right. So I wrote this article about how there was this experimental program that nobody could really explain to me. And even the students <laughs> in it didn't know what the purpose of it was or or what it was supposed to you know, how it was different or what it was supposed to achieve. So that was my article. And I turned it in and I didn't think twice about it. And when it came out, um, it had been rewritten. It had my byline on it. Yeah. And, the, and the faculty advisor had never come and told me he was doing this. But uh, uh the article beneath my byline only bore a passing resemblance to what I'd actually turned in. And I just remember going into his office and kind of, you know, yelling at him. Uh, I felt horribly betrayed. Yeah. Um, and it was ridiculous because he had gone, he had a vested interest in the program. You know, he was one of its champions. And and when I was talking to him about it, he goes, well, Tim, you have to understand if that article had come out, we might not have gotten funded for another year. Yeah. And I yelled at him, I was like, well, if you read the article, maybe you shouldn't have been funded for another year. That's like nobody could tell me what's going on with this yeah. thing. But he had he did this ridiculous thing of going to the students and asking. He was a teacher and he went and asked the students what they thought of the program. And he got a bunch of great quotes about how wonderful it was. Of course he, he did. Yeah. Teacher. Yeah. <laughs> so I just remember, you know, like yeah. being horrified by that. And, you know, so that's just a like, long-winded way of answering your original question. It goes back at least to, you know, when I was 14, I guess, and, and probably a couple of years before that. Yeah. We're here, you know, one of the reasons we're here is you guys really released an album, Mistakes Were Made, which, um, which I, uh, well, it's officially released this month, right? Is that coming up? Is, March 19th. March 19th. Sorry. Yeah. I got the, I got the advanced copy of this and, and uh, as part of a, um, a, a very successful GoFundMe that you guys put together, and and uh, and I love it. It's 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 fantastic. It's really really great, and uh, and it captures um, you know for for the too much joy fans out there. I I think it 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 captures all of the things that that you like about the band in in higher fidelity and with louder guitars in some instances, and and uh, it's it's. Uh, it's really, uh, it's really great, and and there's there's differences uh, between between the albums here, but um, but we'll we'll talk about that in a second. But I want to get get back to um, you know let's 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 talk about kind of your origin story. Now now too much joy for those people that are unfamiliar um, was a band that that had its biggest success, uh, arguably in in the mid '90s. Would you say is that right? Yeah. Um, and uh, so, 25 years later, uh, roughly from your from you know your last album, uh, you released "Mistakes Were Made." Um, what what brought you guys back together uh, in this instance? Is it the pandemic's the, the you know the, the short answer? Yeah. The pandemic and Bandcamp, um, the the two sort of go together because Bandcamp started uh, you know uh, early last year, uh, or rather in the early days of the pandemic. Bandcamp started this initiative to help musicians who, you know, couldn't make money anymore playing shows since yeah. all of a sudden everything was shut down by having this first Friday initiative where the first Friday of every month they would waive their commissions and artists got to keep 100% of whatever sales they made that day. So I think the first month or two of that went by 
and I saw all, you know, what I consider my peers releasing random stuff during these these first Fridays. So by the time June came around in sort of mid to late May, I was like, oh, I guess I should get some stuff together for too much joy to do this. And I just went trolling through the archives and I found a bunch of random B-sides and record store day, you know, contributions to tribute albums and things like that that just weren't available online otherwise. Um, so there were like three or four different releases. Most of them were singles or EPs or something. Um, and I, I just threw them up for the Bandcamp first Friday. I wasn't really expecting anything. And the response was kind of overwhelming and gratifying. People, the, you know, we don't have a lot of fans, but the ones we have really, really, really like us. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so just sort of encouraged by that, Sandy, the original bass player in the band, uh, was emailing me and he said, hey, what do you think if we set a goal of having an actual new song for July's first Friday? And I was like, yeah, sure, let's try it. He had a riff he was working on. I had some random lyrics lying around. We sort of put the two together. He shared it with the other three guys um, in the band. They kind of started tweaking it. And we decided to see if we could get this thing recorded. So he and the drummer, Tommy, were going into a studio to lay down the rhythm tracks in New York. They live in, three of the band members live in New York. Two of us live out here in California. And as they were going in, I said, hey, you know what? While you're in there, see if you can bang out a version of Snow Day. Snow Day was a song we'd written in the early 90s, but had never actually recorded. Yeah. Uh, and I always felt sad about that. I always wanted like a non crappy, you know, rehearsal tape version. Of it's one song. of my favorite songs on the album, by the way. Yeah. I love oh, it. Yeah. Thanks. Yeah. yeah I'm, I'm, I'm really pleased with the way it came out. Um, and so they did that. And we wound up with this sort of three track single that we put out that we released for July's first Friday. And I don't know. And then the response to that was even more overwhelming than the, the June first Friday. And that just kind of inspired us. We said, and we kind of set ourselves a goal. We're like, you know what, if we did this one, you know, one old song and one new song yeah. every month, um, we'd have a full album's worth of material in time for Christmas. So again, just, you know, sort of as a dare to ourselves, we set that as a goal and something about, you know, I mean, 2020 was a pretty, freaking dystopian year uh easily the worst year of my life you know mm. that i've lived through um not not that anything personally bad happened to me just like watching what but was going on awful in the world watch, I was like, yeah, this is yeah. this is easily of my 55 years on planet earth this yeah. is the nadir um so that combined with the fact that everyone was going a little stir crazy um just you know we had a lot of excess creative energy to pour into this endeavor. And it's a joyful, uh, oddly, not oddly, because it's not, it's consistent with the rest of your music, but it's a joyful album for the most part. You I mean, there's, there, there are some perhaps lyrical themes that aren't as joyful, but, but it's a, you know, it's from a musical standpoint, it's, it's a, um, you, you don't get the dystopian feel. Out, you know, well, that, that, it, you know? that, that, that gratifies me to hear, because I think lyrically yeah. it's pretty, it's, it's darker than I'm accustomed to being because mm. um, it just sort of felt that way. Uh, and, you know, there's, there's, there's a sense of doom and despair running through a lot of the songs that we try hopefully to combat with both the music and sometimes even just singing about sadder 
angry stuff can make it better even if yeah. you know if, if, without if, if especially if the song doesn't say it's going to be okay right um if the song just acknowledges reality that in and of itself especially in 2020 when so many people were spending expending so much energy denying reality yeah um that in and of itself can be a, a boon well it's interesting um, also because you you know there's songs that you can listen to that are angry songs and they are delivered angrily um and then there are songs that are that are perhaps thematically angry, but are delivered in a uh, in in a, in a different way. Maybe maybe a tongue in cheek way, or or a sarcastic way. You know, somewhat like the clash. A lot of the clashes stuff to me is angry, but still sounds joyful in its way. You know, well, and I would I, I, I would use the word bemused. Bemused. There is a good yeah. <laughs> too much joy probably the, both as individuals and as a collective. I think our default reaction to most of what happens in the world is yeah. amusement. Um, <laughs> so you go past like, joy into bemusement. <laughs> yeah, because it's kind of like, uh, are you fucking kidding me? Yeah. Like, do you really think that thing you just said? You can't really believe that. Um, let, so me, it, you know, let me, since we're talking about the album a little bit, let me ask you, because I, I, um, I, I'm big into lyrics and I, you know, so I was, I was going into it and like one of the things that jumped out to me in, in, in the song Flux Capacitor uh, which, which I think is a is, is somewhat a whimsical song, right? I mean, it, it, to some degree, but but it, it. My dog is speaking English. My grandma is a tree. My teeth are falling on the floor. My hand becomes a key. Were you influenced by Tom Waits at all? I mean, because there's a there's a there's a Tom Waits it's Tom Waits ish aspect to the imagery of, 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 of those things. You know, my dog is speaking. It sounds like right out of bone machine. Um, <laughs> you know, um, I would say, well, that, that song in particular, I think there are two main influences. Yeah. The biggest one is David Lynch. Um, the, my grandma is a tree is, you know, really me copying an image from, uh, season three of twin peaks. Uh-huh. Uh, the tree wasn't a grandma, but there was this like tree that somehow, was sentient yeah um you know that was trying to communicate shit to the characters <laughs> in it and that and and the thing about the thing i love about david lynch is his stuff sticks with you even when you're when it's completely befuddles you in the moment yeah and you have no idea what's going on in the screen um it just stay you know you it 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 just keeps going around and around in my head. And that yeah. tree from that was, was one of those images that I just kept flashing back to. And it started cropping up in my own dreams. Um, and so that, and that's the second influence is just dreams. The, the point of the song um, is that the, our brains, this, this is the thing I like about life on planet earth. Every single human being, no matter how materialistic or, uh uncreative they might think they are uh is a poet when they fall asleep their our brains speak to our subconscious minds speak to our conscious minds in the language of metaphors and analogies um trying to tell us communicate you know secrets that we don't want to that our conscious minds want to reject yeah but, but that our subconscious thinks it's very important for us to know that's just amazing to me that everybody on planet earth is creating art in their head like beautiful like profound art in their heads they just don't know how to express it once they wake up yeah, yeah. or where or, so, or they do yeah, yeah yeah and 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 to me you know one of the reasons david lynch is such a powerful artist i think is because more so than anybody i can think of just about he's got this sort of direct connection 
to not just his, but all of our subconscious. Yeah. And he somehow has, he's got this profound skill at just putting up as unfiltered as I've ever seen expressions of the subconscious in a way that they don't resist interpretation. They're just open to so many different interpretations, which is the case with the dreams. So Flux Capacitor, you know, it's not trying to be a wacky song. It's trying to take either things that I have literally dreamed mm -hmm. um, or things that are uh, sort of universal dreams, like your teeth falling out, um, things of that nature, uh, and string them together in a way that uh, doesn't, you know, tells a story without necessarily trying to. Yeah. Um, that was the goal anyway. I was just trying to, I was, I was trying to do in song, write a song that, that, that hopefully achieved some of what David Lynch achieves with his movies. Yeah. I, you know, I, I, I'm a huge Tom Waits fan. And, and um, one of the things that I, I, I think about like what he does lyrically and, and I think what Tom Petty does lyrically is, is they're able to deliver simple lines that are, that, that become profound as you you know as you put them together and and as as you read them later so uh, you know it uh, it's, i'm gonna have to go back and now read read the lyrics with that uh with that frame but uh you know it, uh, all, contrasting to that you know the springsteen influence perhaps uh or the springsteen stuff where uh we're in your car in the dark you've got uh the the um, the verse I, I knocked you up in the back seat like we were in some Springsteen song. But tramps like us, we don't get hitched. There's a clinic. It didn't take long. <laughs> Just amazing stuff. I mean, I really um, loved. I, I loved it. It was you know such a great play. Um, I mean, that's a you know I I I, I love Bruce. Um, I love what happens in his songs. I love the the care he takes with his craft. Yeah. Um, but you know when it comes to the river in particular, I just every time I hear that song, I'm like okay. She didn't have, he didn't have to, they didn't have to get married. They didn't have to do it. <laughs> he didn't have to lose it. He didn't have to go work in the factory. He didn't have to do all that. <laughs> it's the title track of the song. You could have laughed. It's a tragedy. So quit bitching about it. I'm sorry. And so I wanted to write, you know, the, the, which, the pro choice. Which makes you wonder, did he not know that? Or was he trying to place this song at a different time? Or, you know, is it, oh my God. Did, did she yeah, want the kid and he didn't, you know? <laughs> You know, some people just don't question it. <laughs> oh, it's amazing. Um, did the pandemic change how you guys uh, traditionally in the back in the day? Uh, I read that you would all write together. Uh, you mentioned that you had, you know, you had uh, the lyrics and uh, and and there were riffs and and everybody started tweaking. Did this? Did the structure of this album uh, differentiate or different? God, I can't talk today for whatever reason. I'm sorry. Um, did the structure uh, become different with the pandemic and the way that you had to put this thing together in terms of the writing process? Yeah, it, it completely upended our writing process to the to the extent that, you know, several band members are still sort of miffed about how we had to write this time around. Uh, normally, you know, there there is... A lot of bands, you know, have multiple writers and, you know, if there's a band with two or three writers, you know, one will get three songs on a record and one will get five songs on a record. Too Much Joy has never done that. Um, I write the vast majority of the lyrics, like 99% of the lyrics. Um, but I, you know, the, the conceit is that I'm expressing the band's 
subconsciousness. Right. Which is I'm noted in the liner notes that there, yeah. there were there were some uh, dissenting opinions about yes. one song that, in that, particular. Right? That, that has frequently been the case. <laughs> but the general idea is that, uh, you know, anytime we've written and recorded together in the past, it's happened with all of us in the room at the same time. So it might be that Sandy would come in with a riff he'd been working out on his bass or Jay would have a couple of chords um, or Tommy would have a beat or something. Um, and that would be the seed around which a song would grow. But it was never, ever the case that a band member would walk into uh, the rehearsal room saying, here's a song, play it this way. Yeah. Uh, and so usually we just start jamming. And sometimes I would have a complete lyric and we, you know, we'd, we'd craft us, we'd craft the music around that more often, the, you know, I'd have stray lines, potential titles or potential choruses. And when the guys started playing something, right around the riff. Fit, yeah. Yeah. And then I'd write a lyric around that based on whatever melodies we came up with in the moment. So this was the first time ever that that just, you know, physically was a physical impossibility. So more so than any other record we've ever made, a song will come on and I will think to myself, oh, that's a Sandy song or that's a Jay song or that's a Bill song. Um, musically anyway and that that's never been the case before mm. so there were we just didn't have the opportunity to sort of evolve a song in real time with all five of us contributing um at the you know at the same moment uh and that's that was uncomfortable for a lot of us uh, it's just not the way we're, we're used to working because you wind up with this i don't want to call it a competition but um you know one guy might have I mean, we we have we wound up with you know close to thirty songs I think yeah we winnowed them down to sixteen for the for the final release, uh, but even just doing that like so, you know some people were like ah oh, all my songs got cut that's never a thing that we've ever that's never a conversation we've ever had before because nobody ever had my song does it speak to a follow up release perhaps um, that well that... it's I mean <laughs> I, I will tell you as we, you know we've been talking about okay you know there were a bunch of songs we just didn't even get around to recording. Mm. Um, and we've continued to write since then, but the, and we've been asking ourselves, okay, when do we start the next one? Will we start the next one? Yeah. Uh, and the, the, there, there's no consensus yet as to when we will start it. There's not even a consensus as to how we will start it, but there is a consensus that we won't do it the same way this time, uh, which sounds weird because I love the results. No, I, the I'm, record's I'm, great. I'm yeah. super proud of this. And there, yeah. it sounds way better than it has any right to, I think. You know, a bunch of middle-aged jokers getting back together after not having done this for 25 years. Yeah. You don't expect it to sound um, who mixed it? A piece with what they used to do, but I think this does. Yeah, I I, I had the liner notes, but who who mixed it? Uh, I, I, I... Oh, Bill Bill Whitman. The, okay. So basically, Bill was our producer on Mutiny, and finally he joined the band as the bass player when the original bass player Sandy left. Um, San, so he's remained our he's been our producer since 1992. He's been our bass player since 1994, and uh, now Sandy has returned to the fold. So sometimes Sandy plays bass, sometimes Bill plays bass. Gotcha. Everybody writes, everybody sings. That's great. Yeah, no, it's it, um, everybody should check out. I mean, if you're a fan, you're going to check out this album 100. But but I, if you've never heard the band, uh, God, God, it's really hard to compare you to other people. Um, but I, but there are, um, for me, elements. Uh, when I was listening to the album, uh, some two bands kind of jumped out at me, kind of 
thinking about the well, guitars reminded me of some guided by voices uh, in, in some cases. Rick Ocasek produced guided by voices, you know, <laughs> <laughs> like high fidelity, awesome stuff. And, uh, and, and, and for that matter, the cars, I mean, there was, there was definitely like a, there were some songs that kind of uh, gave me that vibe uh, as well. But also, I mean, I don't, I don't know what, how you characterize music anymore, but um in general, I, I found that uh, I find that whole uh, problem vexing. But um, let's how, how did this start? You you grew up in outside of New York and where and where outside of New York? So uh, we all grew up in uh, not counting Bill, who's a Brit and joined us later on. We yeah. all grew up in Westchester County. Okay. Uh, Tommy, the drummer, was in Eastchester and the other three of us were in Scarsdale, New York. Uh, and, you know, so we're, we're upper middle class suburban kids, basically, but we grew up in the, in the seventies and eighties. So close enough to the city where you're, you're kind of like New York city, but not, but I was Teaneck for a few years growing up. So you're like, I tell people I'm from, you know, I was born in New York, which I was, right. but, but yeah, you, you can always <laughs> tell when someone's from Scarsdale because they say, I'm, they don't say what town they're from. They say what County they're from, <laughs> who the hell says what County they're from. <laughs> Um, but I say Westchester because not everybody's from Scarsdale. Uh, but yeah, it was in, at that time in the drinking age was was 18 in New York State at the time. So from the time we were 14 on, we could go into the city, go to Danceteria, go to Peppermint Lounge um, and see, you know, all the uh, British post-punk bands that were coming through. Saw The Clash three times, saw The Jam, saw Gang of Four over and over and over again. Um it was just, it was a great time to be a music fan and a great place to live if you were one. And, and you, when did you start singing? I don't think I've started singing. I, I kind of <laughs> grumble you and started growl. Singing. Come on. <laughs> um, but uh, I was, so we, we, we formed the band literally to play Clash songs at high school dancers dances uh we we got sick of going to high school dances and watching all the rich kids with synthesizers maul progressive rock and southern yeah. rock and led zeppelin songs um and, and this like, is this is what this, what you're, what a what year is this were we talking about this is probably 1979 so okay. i think we're 14 or so okay um and uh so we were gonna i was gonna be the rhythm guitarist and sandy was gonna be the bass player and we had two other friends who were gonna play drums and guitar uh, Sandy learned his instrument faster than the rest of us. And then one day I heard, and the thing is at the time, Sandy and I were the only clash fans in my high school that I knew of. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, and one day I heard someone playing police on my back very near my house. And I was like, Oh, there's another clash fan in, in my town. I'm going to go track this person down and have a new friend. Yeah. So I just followed the sound. Um, and uh, I should have figured this out. It was coming from Sandy's backyard. Sandy lived a block away from me. Um, but it was not anyone playing the record. It was Sandy and Jay and Tommy, the guys, the guitar player and drummer and what's now too much joy jamming on police on my back. And I walked into Sandy's backyard. I was a little confused. I was like, what's going on? I, Sandy, you and I have a band. <laughs> um, but he was he was getting impatient because the me and the other two guys weren't really picking it up, picking up the music piece as quickly as he had. So yeah. he formed this band with these other two guys. And they were kind of embarrassed. Uh, and they were like, well, you could be the singer. Um, so they just put me in the middle and had me start mouthing the words. So when when did the band uh, when did you start to realize success with the band? 
and, and how did that go down? Um, it, it depends what you count as success. Uh, we self-released our first record. You know, we just started making demos as soon, you know, within a couple of months of getting together. Um, so we were recording from 1981 on, I think. We assembled like six years worth of eight track and 16 track demos uh, on an album in 1987 called Green Eggs and Crack that we self-released. That, um, you know, we pressed up a thousand vinyl copies. We sent 600 of them to various left of the dial college and, and commercial radio stations. Um, and we started getting some airplay. Uh, there were a couple songs on that and, and at some big stations. There was like one called 91X in Southern California. Yeah, yeah, I remember, um, I remember 91X, absolutely. Yeah, their yeah. transmitter was in like Mexico or something. Yeah, no, they were pirate radio, uh, yeah, 91X. Yeah. yeah, I was I was in um, early high school when that when that came out. So. Yeah, so they, they started playing us and a bunch of college stations picked up a couple of the sort of jokier songs on the record. Yeah. Um, and that led, so, you know, that felt like success to me. That led to a deal with an indie label called Alias that at the time was based in San Francisco. Um, they gave us a recording budget. So they gave us like $15,000 to go make a record. Again, that felt like success. It was like, yeah. oh, now, you know, um, we recorded and released that album. And then that got picked up by Warner Brothers. Uh, and so they took over the contract from Alias. They re-released that record with a couple other tracks on it. Um, and let us go make a video. We were covering an LL Cool J song on the record. So LL Cool J was in our video. MTV started playing that video. And KRS, KRS One was on the song, right? That was, that was the next. Oh, album. that was the next album. Okay, sorry. Yeah, the first the first album was just us covering. I mean, the the second album, Son of Sam, I Am, was us had us covering an LL Cool J song. And when uh, Warner Brothers picked it up, they gave us a, a video budget and we got LL to be in the video with us. Uh -huh. um, and MTV started playing that video, you know, during daylight hours rather than at their, you know, in their, their 120 minute, their once a week Sunday night at midnight yeah. alternative rock show. So that totally felt like success. Like signing to a major felt like success. Getting on MTV felt like success. Touring the country and, you know, actually selling out uh, decent sized venues that felt like success. I mean, um, by every measure yeah. that is success. I mean, by looking back, you must right acknowledge that that from a from a musician's standpoint, that was that was success, right? From, from yeah. a fourteen year old me standpoint, that was success. Yeah. Uh, unfortunately, it was you know since we were not selling gold records, that was not success as Warner Brothers defined it. So right. that didn't last very long. As your perception of of the experience, I mean, do you look back and and with with a sense of of uh, accomplishment, or do you look back with a sense of, of you know failed expectations or something like that? Both, both. both. Yeah. You know, I mean, I, I think I think it's natural. Um, you know, you make music, you want it to be heard. Yeah. I, I, this is the thing I've said a lot. I never, I never personally had as a goal. The other band members, you know, some some other people in the band differ sort of significantly with me in this regard, and you know, no judgment on them for that. I didn't want to sell 10 million records. I wanted to sing my songs to however many people would hear them and understand them and feel about them the way I felt about my favorite bands, yeah. you know, which at the time were REM and The Clash and the Nikons and Gang of Four. Like yeah. if we could do for people who liked our music, what those bands did for me, that to me was going to be success. Um, I guess in the other, uh, 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 I put this quote in a, in the liner notes of, of finally once i got terry pratchett's permission to do it there's a terry pratchett book called soul music and there's a great exchange in that book where uh one 
one character says to another who's in a band, he says, well, don't all musicians want to be famous? And a musician says, famous, I don't know about. In my experience, musicians just want to play their music, have people clap and say, here is some money. Do yeah. it again tomorrow, please. Yeah. And and, and, maybe, to- and maybe have a roadie so you don't have to change your own strings. Yes. And, you know, like to me, that would have been, I, I had 10 minutes of, of being on Mercury Polygram, but, you know, got the check and then they switched, hand, you know, uh, presidents right right away and and uh, you know and, and I look back and I you know I, I've I've realized and at some point along the line that 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 was a pretty amazing experience and and for by by many people's definition that would be would be success but it's also it's also um, hard to you know you look at a lot of musicians that um, that wanted to have the experience of just doing their music as a craft the rest of their life, not having to get a day job of some kind or another. Um, and we'll talk about your day job because I think you're, that's a whole separate part of you that I think is fascinating and amazing. Um, but uh, but having to get a day job was always like the big fear that, you know, you just don't, I, I, you know, we got this far, I, you know, I, I quit the copy place that I was working at and you want to <laughs> just keep going so you don't have to go back to the copy place, you know, and, and hopefully along the way somebody will tune your guitars for you and just hand you the right next guitar and you don't have to stand there like an idiot, you know. Yeah. Well, but, if, you yeah. know, if I if I have a regret about the sort of mid-90s phase of whatever passes for our career, it would be that at a certain point, we all internalized the major labels definition of success Mm -hmm. whereas when we started it was just we had these sounds in our head we wanted to get them out in the world and Mm -hmm. that was literally the only goal um and over time that became you know you like i said it's natural to want more and more people to hear it um but there's a point where that more and more becomes unnatural right yeah um and if i i think it's hard to know for sure but i think if we had been less concerned with um achieving what the you know the sales goals that the label had for us uh and had been more concerned about just uh maintaining the base that we had developed so like the label you know the label wants you to go from clubs to theaters to, to arenas, arenas yeah, yeah. to stadiums right yeah. um and if we had just we, we had gotten to a point where we could sell out a 500 person venue in most markets uh and if we had just stuck with that um, and kept touring more relentlessly than we wound up doing. Uh, I think, you know, we could have had a very different career where we did just make a living making music. Um, but we were at a certain point, we started chasing, you know, radio airplay uh, in a way that wasn't necessarily going to happen for us. Yeah. Uh, and I think I think that, you know, I asked myself a lot, like, oh, what if we what if we'd gone left instead of right at that point? Yeah. Yeah. And 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 you also had people in the band, even even during you know, your success, you had people that were, were still working, right? Uh, with, oh, yeah. The, know, the drummer, the drummer never left his day job. He was a New York City cop. Right. Uh, other three of us were were bums, basically. Like, I mean, honestly, we're kind of we we're kind of obnoxious about it. I used to love going to movies in the middle of the day in Manhattan. Yeah. Um, and um, on weekends, I'd sniff at the civilians who were standing in line for movies. I'm like, you'd see movies on weekdays. Why would I go see a movie when everybody <laughs> else is seeing a movie? Yeah. Um, Charles, so, yeah. uh, uh, Charles Bissell of the Wrens, you know, kind of had the same, you know, the same conundrum. I think he was like at one point he was like the only person in the band that wasn't, you know, that he was, was he became a stay-at-home dad, but he was basically the full-time musician of the band, and and uh, um, and it creates different challenges. I mean, every every band has those challenges to begin with, but once you get to a certain point, it, I assume it 
it makes them uh, amplified. But well, it, you know, it's funny you mentioned it because my my life plan with my wife, like we'd had a daughter by this point, and the life plan was for me to be Mr. Mom. She was going to be the consistent breadwinner. Yeah, I was going to stay at home and raise the kid and do the dishes and write and record and tour as you know as 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 necessary. Um, and there was never any plan for me to enter the straight world of, of corporate America. Yeah. Um, and there, due to some personal circumstances back in 1999, that shifted. And we, you know, we the, we were lucky. We, in terms of success, like yeah. we had got a major label contract, we got a major publishing deal. They they pay you. They don't pay you a lot necessarily, but it seems like a lot at the time because they pay you all at once. You know, and then whatever you know, they yeah. give you a quarter million dollars, and then that has to last for the next two and a half years, and you'd have to split it four ways. Right. And, um, so and, it's not and it's all rec- and it's all recoupable against yeah. your next you know, next uh, album. And what did your wife do at the time, or what, or what is she? she uh, ironically, she was working in an A and R administration at Sony Records. Oh no, on. kidding. <laughs> yeah. Um, so she was. We were both in the music business, but she was on the admin side, and I was on the creative side. No kidding. Um, and we had, but so we'd made enough from the band, you know, in those those early days that when when she got pregnant and we had our daughter, um, we had enough money set aside that she didn't have to go back to work. Mm. So our life plan was for us to both stay home until our daughter started school, until she started kindergarten. We were both home full time. Um, you know, I would I would go and tour when when we had the tour, but neither of us was working a straight job uh, for the first five years of our daughter's life. And then when she entered kindergarten, the plan was for my wife to go back to work and me to be the stay at home dad. And, uh, a, a very close friend of ours died that year. Um, and he was only 40 and he just had a, a son and, you know, it was this tragic thing and it hit both of us really hard, but it hit my wife harder than me. Mm-hmm. And to the point where like, she just, you know, she didn't feel like she was afraid to go out in public cause she just burst into tears. And, yeah as the year went on, I kept saying, so, you know, daughter's starting school in September, <laughs> money's running out. Uh, when are you going to start going on interviews? And she just sort of burst into tears. Like, yeah, who's going to hire me? I'm going to start crying in the middle of an interview. Um, and it was 1999. It was crazy.com times. Yeah. Um, and, you know, we had, I said a stupid thing and, you know, we weren't having an argument, but we were having a discussion about it. And I said, I was, she goes, well, why does it have to be me anyway? And I said, well, because this was our plan. We, we planned for this. I was like, besides, who the hell's going to hire me? I'm unhirable. But, you know, if the perfect job came along, of course I'd take it. And at the time, I was I was freelancing. I was doing some music writing here and there. So I was on a bunch of... Uh, was the band know, dissolved at this point or... or, or No, the band never, never dissolved. really dissolved. Okay, but... Yeah, it never dissolved. It was just you know, in, we, we, on hiatus? Yeah, we weren't, or, yeah. there were no plans to record or tour, but like we hadn't officially broken up or anything. Right. Um, but I was on a bunch of PR lists and uh, I got a, and, and I had a weekly music column for a Bay Area website. And I got a press release from Girly Action about this new startup called listen.com that had wisely, that was in the music space and they had wisely hired a music PR firm rather than a tech PR firm to promote themselves. So I got the press release. I was like, oh, I'll, maybe I'll do my next week's column on this. And I went to the site to look at it. And I told my wife, I was like, this is the first .com that makes any sense to me. This is a genius idea. And so I was showing her the website and she pointed at this thing in the upper right-hand corner that said, do you want a job? And she goes, click on that. So we clicked on it and it led to this page that said, 
Uh, can you write? Are you funny? Do you know everything there is to know about a particular genre of music? Do you want health insurance and stock options? And Donna goes, click that. So I clicked that. She goes, what was that you were saying about, you know, if the perfect job came around? So I was like, okay, I'll go, I'll go in, you know, I'll apply. So I applied. I went in for an interview. You know, I typed up the first resume of my life. I went on the first interview of my life. I'm like 35 at this point. Yeah. Um, and I got hired on the spot, basically. Uh, and that started this whole other, you know, basically the last side career of of misadventures. So I'm hoping I hoping this is a record in that we've gotten this far into an interview without asking you about about the Broward incident. Um, But uh, before we get to your get deeper into your career, um, there were there were two things I wanted to ask you about. The first one um, and and we'll, we'll blow through it quickly because I, uh, I know it's probably annoying to you. Um, the, uh, the first is you, um, you find out the two live crew got arrested on obscenity charges. You're recording your album in LA and you decide to put together this protest show essentially uh, to, you know, in, in defense of the first amendment. Uh, and, and the original idea was to involve other bands like REM and, and, and others to, you know, have this array of bands that they would have to arrest, which they would never do because that's crazy. And, uh, and the whole thing's crazy because, you know, people are singing songs and it's sexual, but, but who gives a shit? And right. Uh, um, was, at what point did you realize there was not a single band that you, like, 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 did they, I know that some of them said they didn't want to do it and they were worried about it and they didn't, you know, they weren't going to take a chance, but, but, you know, at that point, did you realize that this was more serious of a, of an issue for, or potentially for you? And, um, and and to skip ahead, what happens is you you know you, you can tell the story, but you 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 play the show, and you know four out of five of you get arrested or whatever, and 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 yeah. So I mean, yeah. what happened was you know we had the idea, and then it was as you described. We're like, oh, let's have a big you know, festival style thing where like 10 different alternative rock bands play these hip hop songs and see if those racist cops in Broward County dare to arrest a bunch of white people who sing it in a rock style. Because the law's on your side. I mean, really, ultimately, it's supposed to be, I mean, on paper, it's on your side, right? Yeah, I mean, it was, yeah. it was pretty clear to, it, it was pretty clear to me that they were, you know, it wasn't the words that they were upset about. It was, you know, it was, it was the race. Yeah. Um, there were lots of people doing lots of things that were more profane than two live crew was doing. Um, it was just a way of keeping them down. And it was, you know, disgusting and offensive, you know, on a visceral level to me, it was just wrong. Like it was a state government censoring speech. Right. Um, before the fact, which is just, it's just crazy. It's, it's so blatant. It's like, it's a black and white issue. It's just not supposed to happen. The yeah. fact that any government could allow it to happen, that any court could allow it to happen was shocking to me. Uh, and so we had the idea, we booked the venue, the same venue where they got arrested. We booked a date. Uh, and we just naively assumed like, oh, you know, everybody else will feel the same way we do about this. Uh, and we quickly realized that was not actually the case. Uh, the number of phone calls and in-person conversations and letters that we got um, basically saying, great idea, we're booked that day, um, quickly became pretty depressing. Yeah. Uh, and we wound up in this point where we're like, okay, well, if we just do it alone, we're going to look like publicity whores, like we're doing it for the wrong reasons. Um but calling it off felt worse 
right? Yeah. So uh, at a certain point, we're like, well, okay, we're going to do this. We'll take some, we'll take some bullets. Uh, people will think we're doing it for the wrong reasons, but that's better than the alternative, which is to back out. You, you did a presentation or uh, was it a presentation or an article? Cause it was on, it was on, I read this long on your website. Uh, there was yeah, a, it was a, kind it was of a long essay. This, uh, annual thing called the pop conference where a bunch of anybody who thinks critically about music for a living, whether they're a critic or an academic yeah. um, or a musician uh, gets together and, you know, it's held like an academic conference. So people do like 20 minute papers, presentations, oh, gotcha. uh, PowerPoint presentations, things like that. So, that's, so you, so you I, have I, the, you have it on your website. And one of the things you know, I read it, and one of the one of the things that was interesting to me reading about it, what, you know, part of the the naivety that you, you you talk about was not realizing the the level of this wasn't about the rule. This was about the politics and the media presentation on 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 the sheriff's part. You know, to to uh, to stake whatever ground he was trying to to claim, and that 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 superseded all of the real, true First Amendment issues in some respects. And I and I and working in politics now, you know, it's it it's clearer to me because I you know I I thought you know when I first heard this story that you know go you know go for it go guys you know like I loved it I loved every piece of it but it but um, at the same time looking at it as a near 50 year old it's it takes on a different flavor when you realize that these has nothing to do with the law it has to do with the presentation and well and also know. i will say you know we did we, we 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 sang the songs we got busted three of the four of us did we spent a night in jail um it wasn't you know i mean it, well, it's scary to have that big steel door slammed behind you uh you know you don't know exactly what's going to happen and you out you went to trial even i mean oh yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. We, we, i yeah. mean the whole point of it was the you know right. civil disobedience you want the public forum um to have a jury of your peers say screw you state government you've overstepped your bounds These right people are not guilty um so you know we weren't there wasn't any real danger to us we were we were you know coming down from our ivory tower uh, we had pro bono ACLU lawyers who we knew were going to take care of us. So the, there wasn't, it wasn't a huge risk to our individual selves. Um, that said, uh, it was shocking to me spending that night in jail for two reasons. The first is it's just a super weird feeling to be sitting in a cell knowing you're there because you sang a song mm. that the sheriff didn't like. That's, you know, again, that's just weird and wrong and not supposed to happen in America. Right. Uh, but the other thing was, um, you know, and I, I th- these are really complicated, nuanced issues, and I'm going to, you know, I'm going to speak about them very generally, and I don't want to upset anyone by doing so. Um, so I, I, I advance apologies for speaking bluntly and potentially too broadly about this, but we were basically the only white guys in that prison, right? And while I wasn't a huge fan of the Two Live Crew record, uh, I did gain a somewhat new appreciation for it or greater appreciation for it after spending that night in jail because everybody was talking just like that record, mm-hmm. right? So in, in a sense, you know, before I went in, before I spent that night in jail, I just thought like, oh, you know, there, there's definitely a race component to what's going on here, but mostly it's just like, oh, it, it's, it's, you know, they're using naughty words and, and, you know, and uptight white people don't like that. So yeah. they're trying to make it stop. But I had a different sense when I, after that night in jail, I was like, this, this record was a reflection of a part of society that I don't really have access to. Um, and, 
America does a really good, a shitty job, but a, you know, they do it well. It's a shitty thing that they do, but they do it well. Um, of sweeping that stuff into sections of our cities and our states where the majority of folks don't have to encounter it ever. And what was happening with Two Live Crew is that as Miso Horny in particular was becoming popular and the record was becoming, was having like a cultural moment was this thing that, you know, frankly, white people aren't accustomed to dealing with was suddenly in everybody's faces. Yeah. And that to me was the real thing that was sparking the the reaction against it and the attempt to outlaw it. It was more like it, it was there was an element of, hey, you've stepped out of your place where you're supposed to stay and we're going to push you back down there. Yeah, I remember feeling in the, you know, as the Tipper Gore stuff was was really kicking off and and Zappa was was testifying and, and you know, D Snyder and these guys that, you know, I remember I remember being viscerally angry and now I wasn't writing the kind of music that wouldn't even qualify on this. But I, I, I wanted to have the right to. Right. Yeah. You know, and and uh, so I really I really appreciated the the gesture, if, you know, or the attempt to, to 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 make the statement that you did. Did it have an, a, a negative effect on your on your music career in any way? I mean, did it did it? Oh, have, I think yeah. I mean, I, you know, it's hard to know for sure. But I think in terms of career moves, it was a mistake. I'd do it again a hundred times. Yeah. I'm not saying on I the morals of it, it, but yeah. Yeah, but I think they because I think if we had succeeded in getting other more famous bands to join us, we would not have faced the backlash that we did. Um, but we got dismissed as, you know, a bunch of craven mercenary jokers who were taking advantage of a situation to sell records. Got it. Um, and let me just tell anyone who feels that way. That wasn't our motivation, but even if it was. It was a total failure in that regard. <laughs> this is not a way to sell records. So, so a couple was it a year or so later? You're at a gig and you're singing "It's a Lie," and uh, and as I read, the custom was to say something at some point in the song that was was a lie or or and but you make a mention of Clinton uh, uh, in this. Yeah. So and, this is. Yeah, so let's tell this story because I, you know, it, it's yet another example. I think, not quite as con consequential, but it must have scared the crap out of you too. Yeah, this, this was five. Or, this was five or six years later. Um, we, you know, that's a lie. Had been a staple of our set from the time we first recorded it, um, and I, I believe we were opening with it this night. It was at, at the Bayou in D.C., a venue in D.C., and uh, that's a lie has a false stop in it, and every night when we play it live during that fall stop i try to tell a site specific lie um sometimes i can't think of one so i just reuse one from you know two months before or a year ago but the idea is to give people a new experience you know if they've mm -hmm. seen us a bunch of times uh in that particular night there because it was dc there were a bunch of secret service people in the audience so and there, and nobody knew who they were protecting but of course when something like that happens rumors start flying around the club so uh, some people told us it was the Gore Girls. Some people told us it was Chelsea Clinton. Somebody said it was the Prime Minister of Bulgaria. Somebody said no, it was the Prime Minister of Bolivia. Um, we didn't know who, but we knew some eminent personage was in the audience. Um, and the so it's weird. We come out on stage. We're you know we're doing our our big opening number, and I have this really odd experience in that everybody who's supposed to be looking at me is looking at these secret service people. So I got pissed. The secret service people were stealing my thunder. So when we got to the false stop, 
I went on this long rant about how uh, there were Secret Service people in the audience and we didn't know who they were there protecting. There were a lot of different rumors. Um, and I said, you know, but as most people know, it's against the law to threaten the life of the president of the United States. Uh, but it's not against the law to tell jokes. Uh, Secret Service people are not known for their senses of humor. So let me explain to them <laughs> that this song is called That's a Lie. And the conceit of the song is that everything I say is a lie. And after I tell the lie, my band members sing, that's a lie, letting you know it's a lie. So while it would be illegal for me to say, I voted for Clinton, but now I hate him, you know, right. uh, and want to threaten violence to him. Um, if I were to actually do that in the context of this song, it would be okay because my band members would come in with perfect timing and say, <laughs> and then they came in with perfect timing and said, that's a lie. So uh, it was, I thought it was a funny little bit. Turns out, what I just said, I said, which is what I thought in my head I was saying, is not actually what's on the tape. And yeah. I swear to God, I have <laughs> no recollection of actually saying what's on the tape. I'm not denying I yeah. said it. Yeah, yeah. I can hear it but on that's the what tape. you thought you had in the head, but yeah. Yeah, I said I want. I, I was particularly upset with you know his his the, the I think it was the Justice Breyer nomination to the Supreme Court. I thought he was sort of a corporatist and was not going to. Yeah. Was not going to be the progressive justice I wanted. Um, and I said I wanted to slap him silly and strangle him till he was dead, uh, President Clinton. Right. Uh, which was very against the law. Um, but the so band, but the band declares that's a lie, right? I mean, that's... the band declares that's a lie. Uh, we do the rest of our set, and yeah. I got detained by the Secret Service for about ninety minutes after the show. They asked me like an hour and a half's worth of questions. Uh, it wasn't hard to convince them that I was not actually a threat to Bill Clinton. Um, and they let me go on my merry way. Uh, yeah. <laughs> um, before we, uh, I want to get to Rhapsody and, and, uh, and Google and whatnot, but, uh, and, and talk about what you're doing now and, and, and industry as an industry person. Uh, but, um, tell me the connection between you and Bob Goldthwaite and, uh, Shakes the Clown. Okay, so I mean, Bob Goldthwait uh, was apparently a fan of the band. Hopefully, I don't know why I put that in the past tense. Hopefully, he still is. Uh, when he was doing his movie about drunken clowns called Shakes the Clown, he licensed our song Clowns, which is about how evil and terrible clowns are. And all kids know this and all parents somehow forget it, even yeah. though they were kids once. Um, and he licensed the song to play over the end credits and Shakes the Clown. And through that, you know, we just got to know him. Uh, if we were, you know, if he if he was on tour and we were on tour, sometimes we'd cross paths. I think like in Youngstown, Ohio once. Yeah. Uh, we were in town at the same time. So like, you know, we got to go to his show after ours or vice versa. Um, so the show in Tijuana, he, like you, you did the show in Tijuana, which is what my friends were trying to get to. I think they, they, they um, and uh, um, and they were asking uh, if, if Bobcat Goldthwait was filming that show and if and where is the footage? If that, if um, true. I don't remember. I okay. don't remember that. Okay. I know he he had Fox, the network Fox, not the news, the the, the, okay. the TV network, um, had had him do a special in the '90s, in the early '90s, a comedy special uh, that was filmed in San Francisco, and so it was basically all his comedian friends, and he he told Fox apparently that he'd only do it if they let Too Much Joy be the musical guest. So oh, great! To be the musical guest. Nice. So we did do a. We were the musical guest at a you know thing with 10 comics that got filmed for tv yeah um that bobcat goldthwaite did 
So how did this all, you know, at some point in the late 90s, you wind up getting involved in artist advocacy and uh, um and I'm trying to remember exactly the, the order, of it, but I want to say in 99 or 2000, I, I believe you had just started with Rhapsody. Is that correct? So I, I had just started in 1999. I'd just taken that job with Listen.com. started the first straight job in my life. Listen.com eventually built and launched Rhapsody, which was one of the first on-demand music subscription services. And one of the best, in my opinion. Thank you. Yeah. I, I appreciate that. Um and I, and I I said at the time, and I, I, I still mean it, like I, I'm literally as proud of what we built in Rhapsody as I am of any Too Much Joy song we ever wrote or recorded or released. So that it was when I did eventually enter the corporate world, um, I was lucky enough that I was able to like the job, the day jobs that I had as much as I liked being in a band Yeah. Um, and felt like I was able to do good creative things. Um, which isn't always the case when you're just trying to put food on the table. Well, you could tell uh, that you could tell that product was was uh, curated by by a real musician because I, I think what differentiated it from from its competitors both at the time and 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 for a long time was you could go into Rhapsody and and you had um, and and forgive me if I had the wrong have the wrong terminology here, but if but essentially it, if you looked up an artist. You could see it, their influences and uh, and their predecessors, you know, the people that they influenced. And so you could literally thread your way through, um, you go to watch the Rolling Stones and you would get a list of, you know, Muddy Waters and others that have, you know, um, and, and then you'd see all the bands that the Rolling Stones influenced and, and thread your way through different um, side projects and stuff. And I don't, even to this day, there really isn't, you know, even with Apple Music, you you can kind of see it, but not. It doesn't have that direct thread that that you built with with Rhapsody. And I'll just I'll just tell you one more point on this. At one point in the uh, mid two thousands, I stopped what I was doing in advertising, and I started well well partly partly stopped and and started teaching uh, high school because I needed health insurance because I it was time for me to grow up. Uh, also in my mid thirties, and. Uh, and one of the classes I taught was contemporary history, and we would um, I made Fridays Music Friday, and and we would basically pull up Rhapsody, and I would do musical history just using using the tools that you guys had had set up, and it was awesome. I mean, it was absolutely absolutely awesome. Thanks. I would I would the only thing I would amend to what you just said. Um, is that it wasn't curated by a musician. It was curated by musicians and music fans. It was a large editorial team um, that I had the privilege of, of overseeing. Um, a lot of them were musicians. A lot of them were music writers. A lot of them were you know, music adjacent. They were DJs or they ran record labels or publishing companies. Um, some of them were short order cooks who just had massive record collections. Uh, but basically we hired people who you know, had a passion for music and were sort of obsessive collectors and knew, you know, who all who was in the credits on every record and how they all connected to one another. And what we tried to do, the the user experience we tried to create was there should be no dead ends. Whatever you came in, whatever you started with should lead to at least six other things. So the idea was because you know when when you have access to anything uh it's just it can be overwhelming and so you need paths you yeah need it, was, it, it wasn't directly linear but 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 it had a path that yeah. you could take that and and uh, it was a choose your own adventure book that you know in in, in music in, in in many ways did you know when did you know that um 
that streaming was was really killing the record business. I mean, at what point in the process? Because you were both a musician that was that was deeply entrenched as a musician and and also part of the uh, threat in some respects. Uh, you know, part of the problem. Not it wasn't a problem because this is where it was going. But 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 did you have a sense early on that this was uh, going to create the kind of existential threat? And I think you 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 said it. You know, this is like fractioned of I don't know what the numbers are these days in terms of the music business as, and how much it's plummeted in the last 10 years but so I I, I would say I it, it's interesting because you used the present tense you said when did you know it was killing um and I would use the future tense because it became clear to me in 1999 that this was going to happen it wasn't happening yet like 1999 was literally the peak of the old record industry yeah um and it's been all downhill since then although with a slight uptick in recent years um but the it, it it I could see the vague outlines of it, and then I was lucky enough, you know, I was I was invited to some panel and the night, you know, or some music conference, and the night before, they had a dinner for all the next day's panelists, and Jim Griffin, sort of an eminent squeeze mm. in this area, uh, was one of the guys having dinner, and so he was sort of outlining things, and he'd been in this world, you know, I had just joined this world, and he'd been in this world for a while, and he was out. So I I remember I asked him. Uh, something about if he thought you know music subscriptions would would actually take hold and he was like he was adamantly and very convincingly explained why it wasn't an if it was a when um and so that i would say that dinner was the night that like he, he made a convert out of me because like i i've yeah. been questioning if this was going to be the case and that after that night i was like okay this is definitely going to be the case i need to plan accordingly yeah um, he was he was brilliant I, I i remember listening to him at the future music uh, conferences and, and, and giving similar speeches and, and what he's just a brilliant guy to listen to for sure yeah but it was you know and and, and with and this was before napster came around but mm -hmm. like once napster came around it was undeniable it was, you know, yeah. you could already, you could make the case very persuasively pre-Napster. Once Napster was there, it's like, okay, the future has arrived. We have to adapt to it. Right. Um, and then they, ironically, by Rhapsody, late, late, much later on, right? After long yeah. after they they were they were the real Napster, they became. Yeah. Yeah. So so you do your stint at at Rhapsody, and then um, was there re did you work for real? Uh, at one point yeah so it, it's sort of it's a complicated corporate history but yeah. i started i joined a company called listen.com we built and launched a product called rhapsody real networks acquired listen.com <clears throat> in 2002 2003 i think and so then i did a bunch of things including rhapsody but some other things for real networks as well um I eventually became an executive at Real Networks, um, which again, being an executive at a publicly traded company, we had not been part of my life plan, <laughs> um, but I, I embraced it when it came. And I stuck with Rhapsody through various corporate permutations. We turned it into a joint venture with Viacom MTV Networks in 2007. And then we spun it off as an independent company again in 2010. And I had been saying since 1999 that, you know, streaming was the future music was going to be a service not a product and uh i had done you know i spent a decade trying to make rhapsody be what spotify is today like yeah. I, I knew there was going to be a thing and i wanted it to be rhapsody um for a variety of reasons that didn't pan out that way uh, the thing came it just wasn't rhapsody so in 2010 i left and joined google because they were starting they were they were finally ready to get into the same space um, so I went to help them build Google Music. 
uh, we, which was at the time a part of what became Google Play. So basically, we built Google Play, and I did that for the next four years. And that was as they were launching Android. Is that, was that so? Android Android was out when I joined. So when I joined Google, they had a, they had this thing called the Android Marketplace that was just selling apps and games with an emphasis on the sell. They were all almost all of them were priced. There weren't really free mobile games back then. Yeah. And uh, Google had a plan to build a digital store that encompassed apps and games, but also added in music and books, uh, and movies and TV shows and magazines and newspapers. Uh, so I was hired to be part of the team that built that thing. We didn't yeah. know what we were going to call it at the time. It ultimately got dubbed Google Play. Um, so what had we built it on the foundation of what had been the Android marketplace. And interestingly, at the time when I got there in 2010, like I said, there weren't really free mobile games. Everything was, you know, maybe you had to buy, pay a dollar, maybe you had to pay $4 or $10, but you paid, you bought them. Um, by the time I left, I think over 90% of the games were free. So mm. I was at Google building Google Play during sort of a critical time when I watched an entire industry do a complete 180 on their business model and realized there was more money to be made giving the thing away for free in the first place and monetizing after the fact yeah. and charging yeah. up front for it. And, um, and you believe and, uh, you believe that about albums uh, as oh, well. Yeah, we, we I've, I was listening to another uh, uh, thing of yours where you were talking about the album as album as an app, uh, essentially. Yeah, um, absolutely. And, 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 and the thing is, I feel like, or not, I feel like I know, I have been saying the same thing consistently since 1999. Um, what I was a little naive about is it sounds different when it's coming out of the mouth of a Google executive than when it's coming out of the mouth of an indie rock musician. Um, but the the message hasn't changed. Uh, the What I learned, you know, in the 90s in my career, and then, you know, became even more powerful, a more powerful lesson uh, as streaming just took and digital distribution took over the music business and I mean completely transformed the, the music business is that in the old days everything we did was a commercial to get people to buy the album the video was a commercial to get people to buy the album an interview like this would be a commercial to get people to buy the album every show was a commercial every performance was a commercial to get people to buy the album that was the 20th century model in the 21st century the album's a commercial, the music itself is a commercial for the artist. It's a way to get you into the artist's world. Um, and I, you know, without realizing it, we'd sort of been basing our career on that even in the late 80s and early 90s. Because the thing is, I used to go to Amoeba Records, you know, and I'd flip through the used record section, the T section. And if I saw a Too Much Joy album on sale for $5.99 or $9.99, I was happy because I knew a potential fan was way more likely to take a chance on us for six bucks or 10 bucks than they were for 20 bucks. Um, and I also knew since we were on a major label, the chances of me getting paid for either of those purchases, whether it was for six bucks or for 20 bucks, was slim to none. Um, so to my mind, I just wanted them to find and like my band because then maybe they'd come to a show and maybe they'd buy a t-shirt. Right. You know, and, where you get and, it, get it on the back end on the merch and the tickets and, 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 you know, maybe, but. Right. So what, what I, what I learned at Google play from the mobile game developers as they, as they shifted they, and they stopped selling their games and they started giving them away. Um, and their profits exploded when they did that. Right. And the thing is they recognized that. They were only going to monetize, and sorry for using a douchebaggy word, but I haven't found a better one. <laughs> they were only going to monetize a single-digit percentage of their total install base. Like, you know, 3% is, is success in yeah. this world. Um, 
but you can literally make a billion dollars monetizing 3% of your install base. That's what Candy Crush Saga did. They yeah. had so many people install that thing. 97% of them never paid for the privilege in any way, shape or form, right? They never bought any, they never made any in-app purchases. But they'll, but the pay, but they'll pay $100 in extra lives after the fact, right? right the 3% yeah, yeah. who do pay, pay right. a lot. Yeah. And the thing is that really resonated with me because I'd sort of, I recognized this dynamic from my own career, even before the internet. Um, and so what I, I eventually left Google and founded a company to, to sort of help musicians and free, managers. Freeform development is that, with, yeah. with Brian Calhoun, right? At one yes. point, yeah. uh, and our, our mission was to get people to treat albums like mobile games. And the idea was make your album an app. It's not instead of releasing a vinyl record and putting it up in Apple Music or Spotify, it's an addition to, um, but make the album an app if it all the things albums had when I was growing up, like photos and credits and lyrics and things that weren't possible back then, like videos and gameplay and direct interaction with the artist. Um, so create this beautiful, sexy thing that fans will love and then give it away. Yeah. Uh, don't charge for it, which is what people were originally doing with artist apps and album apps. Monetize your fans after the fact. Just the, the goal is to bring them into your fold, into your universe and, you know, get money from them not once but over and over and over again have again, you run into sounds, i'm sorry go ahead i was gonna say that sounds super mercenary but i don't mean it that way what i what i learned um you know i think way too many people musicians in particular obsess over you know the per play rate that spotify's that they get from spotify or youtube and i'm not saying don't advocate and and and, and expend energy trying to get those companies to pay more they should um but don't stop there. That's not, and, and, and don't spend too much of your effort doing that because what you're really looking for is not, everything's a floor, not a ceiling, mm. right? Um, and the internet really, and digital distribution really makes that possible. Uh, so the thing is, a song is not worth 99 cents. You know, it's not worth a tenth of a penny. It's not worth 99 cents. It's worth, it's, and an album's not worth $9. Different songs are worth different things to different people. Even if you're Taylor Swift, most people in the world, her music is worth zero dollars too, right? Mo the m mass of humanity on the planet is not going to pay a penny to hear uh, or buy a Taylor Swift song. Um, but there is a slim percentage of the of the universe that will pay, and there's a slimmer percentage of that that will pay a lot. Yeah. And what you want to do as an artist, as a manager, as a label, as a publisher, is give those fans the opportunity to pay you what your music is worth to them. Uh, and so this is, you know, again, just using mistakes were made as an example, this thing was entirely, this thing was probably, it hasn't even come out and it's already profitable, right? Yeah. It was entirely funded by our fans. Uh, like I said, we don't have a lot of them, but the ones we have like us a lot. And so uh, you could pre-order the album for $10 through the Indiegogo campaign, but you could also pay more. You could pay whatever you wanted. Um, and you got various perks for, you know, the more you paid, if you paid $25, you got your name in the liner notes. If you paid $50, you got the bonus disc of outtakes. If you paid a hundred dollars, um, I forget what we did for a hundred dollar folks. If you paid $500, you got a verse written about, right? <laughs> the average donation to our Indiegogo campaign was $70, wow. right? That's amazing. I would never have the balls to charge $70 for my record because my record is not worth $70 to most people on the planet. My, worth, my record is worth $0 to most people on the planet, but it's worth $500 to a few others. It's worth $50 to, to even more others. Um, 
what is what, but is, now that but now that you've done this right you've done the go indiegogo thing um how do you carry that relationship um like do you guys build an app here um uh, to continue the communication or do you continue to do it through the GoFundMe platform? I, I mean, we're, we're, there, there's a, there's no one answer to that. There's a variety of different tools, right? So, so to me, and again, I, I want to do this hopefully without sounding like too much of a douchebag marketing executive or anything, but the, again, lessons from, from mobile gaming are really helpful here. Mobile gaming doesn't measure success. Mobile game developers don't measure the success of one of their titles by how many units it moves. They measure success by this term called ARPU, average revenue per user. Uh, as long, whatever that revenue is, and as long as it's growing, they're happy. Especially if that number is higher than the cost of an ad to get a new customer to install the app. If you can spend fifty cents to get a customer whose ARPU is a dollar, you've just made fifty cents, right? Yeah. Um, and as long as your ARPU is higher than your CPI, your cost per install, you have this perpetual motion machine where you can just keep buying new customers, and they're and they're profitable to you. Um, you can apply the same dynamics to any musician's career at any level, and that's why I say don't. That was my next question: all. Is this is there a you know I, I I understand the dynamics of this model? Is there a minimum? threshold for uh you know is there a floor in which you have to have you know a certain number of fans for uh for a reasonable revenue model to be uh, uh yeah but that's yes yeah. but that's always been the case right, right? The yeah, thing yeah, is, yeah when you're when you're starting out you want to play for free right you're not you're not going to get people who've never heard you to pay five dollars or ten dollars or fifteen dollars to come here you play live in a club you know or you want to open for some band that they are willing to pay right. fifteen dollars. sure but the, but the metrics on that i mean the the gamble was always not not that um that you could you never could quantify what that was doing because there weren't metrics for that but there right. was always that hope that you know somebody you know Mick Jones is going to come into your the South Beach pub at 2 a.m. and hear your band and, and and advocate for them right? right and and you know whereas this uh where it would seem that this would have enough metrics attached to it where you could say okay this is a model that works if you've got yeah. a thousand fans or right. more. Yeah, I mean, I, yeah, yeah. I, I, I can't give you a number that says, hey, once you have 250 fans, yeah. this, this, this just, you know, just it's plug and play, everything will work. But, you know, as a general rule, wherever your music is, whether it's happening in real time or whether, you know, it's on Spotify or YouTube or SoundCloud or wherever it is, you want a way to get fans from there to some place where they become your fans, not where they become your customers, not Apple's customers, not Spotify's customers, not Google's customers. Right. You want them in your universe. An app is one way of doing that, um, but there's enough tools out there like Bandcamp's another way of doing it, right? Basically anything that can get you their phone number or their email address or their physical mailing address is a way of getting of making them your customers. And stop thinking um, of the album as a revenue generator. See, of it, see it as the loss leader into this other relationship whether you're touring or not see to provide content that develops the relationship that's that has a higher arpu yeah i i wouldn't be that black and white about it because it, it doesn't have to be a loss leader it's that it's 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 more that wherever your music is um it's a channel to get people to do other to do other things with you in the future mm -hmm. <laughs> it doesn't mean everything has to be free it's just like so our album, I want people to buy our album. I would prefer they go to Bandcamp and, you know, give us 
actual money for it than streaming it on Spotify. But I recognize that mo more people are going to stream it on Spotify than are going to go buy it on Bandcamp. But if I can get them to the extent that I can get them from Spotify to Bandcamp, um, and I'm kind of mad at Spotify because Spotify doesn't make it easy for me to do that. Pandora is great. Pandora, I, I just posted an audio ad on Pandora yesterday up, yeah. where people who are some percentage of people who are actively looking for too much joy on uh, or listening to too much joy on Pandora are going to hear my voice come on after the song and say, hey, did you know we have a new album coming out? Click here to get it. And you can click there and it will send you to Bandcamp. Mm -hmm. right? And when they get to Bandcamp, there's a variety of different ways you can buy it. You can pay $10 for the digital album. You can pay $100 for this like limited edition vinyl LP. There's you know tiers in between that. But the important thing is at each tier, the price that I've set, and this is brilliant of Bandcamp to set it up this way, is again, it's a floor, not a ceiling. It's the minimum they have to pay. Mm -hmm. But there's a little box where you type in what you want to pay. So again, my, my average donation, I'd have to look it up, uh, or my, my average sales price on Bandcamp uh is something like i think it's over twenty dollars at this yeah. point even though you can get it for 10 but people are giving me more than that yeah right and again it's just because did you did you buy average did you actually purchase and manufacture cds for this one we did and and yeah. we did that on the advice of our of the publicist that we hired we raised enough money through the indiegogo campaign that we not only funded the entire album recording and mastering and pressing um, but we were also able to hire a team to help us promote it. Yeah. Um, and they recommended this. This is not a thing I would have known to do otherwise. They said, yeah, there are there are enough people who will, there are enough critics who still prefer to listen to CDs that we will ask you for 200 CDs to mail. So I pressed 300 CDs and I've got 100 that I'm selling, you know, to, yeah. you know, for 15 bucks. So it's there. You're making least, me feel I'm surprised. There are more people <laughs> there. Are, more people buying the CDs than there are buying the vinyl LPs. You're making Only me feel. Like you're you're making me feel better. You were you were recently on uh, on that record uh, got me high talking about your favorite Mekon album with uh, yeah. with my uh, my buddies uh, Rob uh, Elba and Barry Stock and and Rob and I uh, did a project in I don't know a few years ago four or five years ago we did a, a rock opera uh, about about this producer but I, I insisted that people still wanted CDs and and you know purchased and manufactured a thousand of them like an idiot you know <laughs> and now and now they're in storage and and I've, I've got probably about 850 left to go yeah. but you know <laughs> but but uh, it, it I, I felt we had to do it just for the press just to just to be able to put it put put something in a mailbox you know occasionally yep. but um what are you doing now talk, talk talk about what you're doing now Oh, so I, the company that I left Google to found Freeform Development, I sold it to a company called Zedge Incorporated in 2017. So now I am the SVP of product management for Zedge. Uh, and what I'm doing there is just a continuation of what I was doing at Freeform, which felt like a continuation of what I was doing at Rhapsody and Google, which is trying to create ways to make it easier for people to make a living making art. So what does that mean you know in terms of in terms of the the product or or you know if i'm so, if i'm an artist what does that mean for me what it means so zedge is zedge began life as a personalization app so people install it because they want to customize their phone they want to get a new lock screen or wallpaper or ringtone or notification sounds um so that's what it was before i got there uh, and all the content was user-generated content. It was all available for free. What Zedge had my team do after they acquired Freeform was build a marketplace inside of Zedge. So there's now a marketplace where actual artists who are creating their own original work can sign up, can register on Zedge, uh, get a little storefront inside of the app. 
uh, and we just it's taken the free form model. It's basically saying, hey, you can you control your own destiny. You can do whatever you want. Where if we put you on our homepage, two million people a day are going to see you, um, and you can uh, give your art away for free. You can put it behind an ad gate so people have to watch an ad before they can download the the art. Uh, are these visual visual it, arts mostly? Is that it's mostly? I mean, it's yeah. a combination of because it's ringtones and wallpapers. It's a combination of visual artists and audio artists. Mm -hmm. um, you know, or you can set a retail price for it, and we translate that retail price into Zedge credits, our virtual currency, so people can. The idea is, we give our users ways to get credits for free. Um, that are earning us money, even though the, the user isn't necessarily reaching into their wallet and saying, hey, hi, Zetch, have $5 from me, where you're still getting $5 worth of value from them, and then we just split that with the artists. Uh, so that, that, that in a nutshell, that's what it is. It's a, it's a marketplace where artists can distribute their wares. Is, that, is, is there an advertising component within within Zedge or, or no it's no, free it's it's free to, it's free to sign up. You get 70% of you know we, can, we take a 30% commission on whatever money you make. Pretty cool. So, uh, w pandemic aside, um, what are the plans to support this album? Do you think you'll? Uh, is there are, are there thoughts of of shows? Uh, oh, I mean, honestly, before we even planned on making the record, we were hoping we could do some shows in 1991 just to celebrate the 30th anniversary of Serial Killers. Mm -hmm. um, so there's definitely a desire to play 2021. Together. Yeah, uh, yeah. Once yeah. we're once we're able to again. Um, but when that will be and how it will happen, who knows? Gotcha. I don't. I don't think we work virtually, so we're not planning any virtual shows or anything like that. Well, I I I, uh, I certainly look forward to it. Hope you make it down to LA when that whenever that happens. And um, uh, Tim, uh, the album is "Mistakes Were Made" uh, by Too Much Joy. Uh, please check it out and check out uh, their older stuff as well. You'll love it. It's it. Um, it, it is a band I came to late, but but um, but really really enjoy, and uh, um, it's it's been a pleasure. You're you're actually the second executive. Uh, well, you're the first on the show. There will be a second a Google executive, a, a friend of mine that is is uh, responsible for starting Google Analytics. It was Urchin back when back when it was Urchin. Ah, sweet. So they uh, so Brett Crosby uh, uh, wound up uh, over there at Google. Um, and is joining us uh, later on in the in the cycle, but uh, um, it's so great to uh, to talk to you, and 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 I've been a fan of yours uh, both musically, but also professionally. Uh, also recommend that you. Uh, what, what's what's your website so people can go read some of these uh, older essays if you wanna if you wanna T disclose it. <laughs> Tbquirk.com. Tbquirk.com. Yeah, and there's some really interesting um, writings about the music industry and 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 uh, some of it, uh, it it goes back a few years, but it's but but provides some pretty cool insights about how things are going now Thanks. and. Um, uh, just just a, a real pleasure to watch what you've been doing and, and uh, excited. For, it's been exciting, especially since I think I, I got to know you at the very beginning of your, your Listen.com era and, and watching your career pro progress up and up. It's been uh, really cool. So uh, thanks, thank, thank you. Uh, thanks for your time. And, uh, All right. This was fun. Thank yeah. you.